7.55. Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. One more story before 12. And so begins John Carpenter's The Fog. Hi, it's me again for another episode of And Now the Movie. Today is a very special episode, not only because this is the brand new rebooted version of my podcast, but because this is an episode that honors one of my all-time favorite filmmakers ever, Mr. John Carpenter, whose birthday was last weekend, so I figured, yeah, why not Why not go ahead and uh, do it now? Better late than never, right? And just as a reminder... All of the sound bites you'll hear in here, the movie clips, and the music that is not the main theme of the show. Uh, I do not own, nor do I claim to own, any of these clips or sound bites. These are just here for educational purposes and for sharing my insights by uh, from watching my movies. So please do not sue me if you want to learn more about movies. Okay, now that that's out of the way, the music that you're currently hearing was also composed by John Carpenter, as was the music in our first clip for today, The Fog. John Carpenter has had a very interesting career. He started out as a film student, but then he, he dropped out early to go finish his first film, Dark Star. And all these things you can kind of look up about his history. It's really fascinating. I'll touch on tidbits here, but mostly I'd like to celebrate his film career. Most of his films were not well-received upon initial release. Um, even Halloween, his breakout hit, uh, which was his actually his third, or third movie, um, even that faced a lot of adversity at first, and it wasn't until sort of a word-of-mouth uh, marketing technique sort of spread the, uh, the praise for the film. And of course, the most notorious film that was ill-received upon release was John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. This has gone on now to be regarded as one of, if not the greatest, horror film of all time. And I happen to agree with that. Again, I, I mentioned the music. John Carpenter hasn't made a film since 2010's The Ward, which wasn't his greatest effort, but in my opinion, even his lesser films are still better than what a lot of <laughs> people make now. But uh, regardless, his, um, his new career is in m music. Uh, his father was a, a music teacher professor uh, when he was a kid, and he, you know, his, his foundation was always in music, and I, I have always related to that as a musician myself. Who's, you know, that was my first dip into entertainment was, was through music and dance and those sort of live performance things. And so now John Carpenter, along with his son and his godson, have formed a trio. And they tour around, you know, in, in non-COVID worlds, they tour around and uh, play original compositions as well as revitalized versions of his signature scores from his films. I'm about to play one... Um, one clip of his um, original version of Christine, and then also the revamped version, just little bits of it, just to see how he's evolved as an artist over the years. Take a listen.
Okay, that was just a sampling of the original score to Christine. Did you notice how the music feels very subdued and almost... It, it's treated as more of a blanket to the film rather than something really bombastic that stands out. That's what John Carpenter does with his film scores. He'll create the foundation. He'll create an overarching theme that might be memorable, but in the context of the film, it's only there to support it, not to stand out and to take away from it, generally speaking. Now let's take a listen to how he and his bandmates have changed this song a bit. And uh, in my opinion, as, as you're starting to hear it come in now, in my opinion, this version sort of paints the picture of the film in your head rather than just supporting the pictures. Because if you're performing this live or listening to it in the car or on your iPad or whatever, uh, the, there is no corresponding image. So the music here in this new version from the Anthology album, in my opinion, creates those images for you. Let's take a listen. Carpenter, for me, is one of a select few filmmakers that can pull off wearing multiple hats consistently. His film scores create a foundation for each film and help to elevate the atmosphere, whether it's for suspense, action, or for laughs. Aside from writing, directing, and composing the music for his films, what impresses me the most is this consistency Carpenter has among most of his filmography. Not wanting to be pigeonholed as a horror director, John Carpenter tackled multiple genres across his 40-something year career. He originally wanted to direct westerns, but by the time he started making movies in the late 70s, no one wanted to fund them. Hollywood movies had changed drastically after the Vietnam War, and art movements like the French New Wave started leaving impacts during the 60s and into the 1970s. If you watch Carpenter's films closely, though, you'll see his love for westerns in his other works. Take, for example, his second film, Assault on Precinct 13. The film is basically a riff on Rio Bravo, one of John's favorite films. A police officer, a criminal, and station staff team up to defend an isolated closing precinct from an army of gang assailants. In Howard Hawke's Rio Bravo, the setting might be the Old West and the characters might be a little different, but the genre, the general, you know, siege-type plot is the same. Another film Howard Hawks was involved in, 
um, that featured an isolated location and an assault-type story is The Thing from Another World. Carpenter was asked by Universal to put his own spin on The Thing in the early 80s. Uh, I will likely do an entire episode on these two films later on, as there is a ton to talk about. But what's important here is how John Carpenter used classic films as direct inspiration, applied them to his own films, and put his own vision into each, putting a unique spin on the stories he loved growing up. Themes of isolation, uh, one location, siege-type assaults, all of these things can be found in Carpenter's films over the years across multiple genres. I like to think of John as a master craftsman, using the tools he has available to him to their highest potential. Going back to his music again, he only started composing for his films out of necessity. Remember, he was an independent director, most of his films had very low budgets, and that includes Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, because of this, John composed the soundtrack in about three days with help from his longtime friend and collaborator Tommy Lee Wallace. They used influences like Led Zeppelin to help create a memorable theme in such a short amount of time. With his next film, John did something very similar. This time, he went back to a lesson from his father, playing music in a 5-4 tempo. The theme for Halloween was born, and has become one of the most recognizable themes in cinema. Mood plays a big role, as you can see in his films. Rather than playing for cheap scares all of the time, Carpenter limits his jump scares to key moments and leaves the rest up for a slow burn of suspense. Even a dystopian action classic, like Escape from New York, follows this same formula. John's career really hit its stride after Halloween in 1978. He followed that up with a few more classics like The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing. It's worth noting, though, None of John's films were acclaimed or even that financially successful upon release. Halloween is known for making a ton of money, but that didn't happen immediately. Thanks to word of mouth from early audiences, the film saw a resurgence weeks later to come back and earn a big profit. While most of John's films are considered indie films, he did work in the studio system for several, several of these projects. Uh, the Thing was the first studio picture he was able to helm, and after that was a big flop, partly thanks to the shocking creature effects, but mostly thanks to the release of E.T. just a week or two before, John's options were few and far between. This is how he ended up directing Christine. Originally, John Carpenter was attached to adapt another Stephen King story, Firestarter, and after The Thing, he was let go from that project. When he was offered Christine instead, he jumped at the chance, not knowing when he may have another opportunity to redeem himself after The Thing. Christine is easily one of his most underappreciated films. Who would have thought a Plymouth could be so scary? Check out my previous episodes on Halloween and Christine from last season. I go into more detail on both films and give some fun facts about each. A couple more of his films that don't get enough attention are Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. These concluded his so-called Apocalypse Trilogy. He started with The Thing in 1982. Now, these films are not connected by events or characters, but they're connected in theme, which, of course, is the end of everything. The Thing was set in an isolated base in Antarctica, Prince of Darkness is set in an isolated church, and In the Mouth of Madness shows you that whether you isolate yourself or not, terror can still find you. John rarely repeated himself. Even when he actually did create a sequel in the 90s with Escape from L.A., the film has an entirely different tone from Escape from New York. 
In a lot of ways, L.A. is more of a deconstruction of Escape from New York with a satirical spin on it. In other words, John and star Kurt Russell are poking fun at themselves and other macho films from the 80s and 90s. Their sensibilities changed over the years, so the film they craft together has a stark contrast from the first. Many people did not like this new version of such an iconic character and story. I will say it has taken me some time to understand and appreciate what they have done here. It mostly works, I think, although there are a few sequences that probably shouldn't have happened. Trust me, you'll know them when you see them. Uh, but that ending, that ending is killer. If you're also wondering why I haven't mentioned They Live yet, that's because I also have an episode devoted to that masterpiece in the last season. Definitely go check that out. As much flack as his lesser films do tend to get, I still enjoy watching them and learn things from them every time I watch them. Because let's face it, good, bad, or ugly, if it's a John Carpenter film, it is a must-watch. After Ghosts of Mars, though, uh, John took a break from creating for a few years. He... He says he was sort of burnt out. Uh, he was making movie after movie after movie after movie for years, and considering how great those turned out, I'd be tired too. It wasn't until fellow horror director Mick Garris approached John to join in a new anthology series for Showtime called Masters of Horror that John decided to direct again. Even though it only ran two seasons, the show was a who's who of the genre and featured some stellar television work from everyone involved, especially John Carpenter, who has gone on record saying it made him fall in love with the process again. After directing two episodes for the show, he returned to the film director's he returned to the film director's chair for 2010's The Ward. This was a mid-range John Carpenter movie, but it was still a John Carpenter movie, something many of us never thought we'd get again. In the last 10 years, John has flourished in his second career as a musician, as I mentioned earlier today. I happen to have all of these new albums on vinyl record, and they are fantastic. He has two of them called Lost Themes and Lost Themes 2, and then there's another album called Anthology, where he revitalizes all of his old film scores. And this February, he's releasing a third Lost Themes album, and a few of the tracks are already available to listen to. Go check them out. I selected John Carpenter for the first of a monthly series I'm doing on the show called The Fundamentals. During this series, I speak on films, directors, actors, composers, and more that have a lasting impact on my journey as an artist, entertainer, and analyst. Even though this is a brief overview of his career, I still wanted to share him with you today in the hopes that you might check out some more of his films. For me, his entire catalog is worth watching, but here are a few of my favorites. As I mentioned before, Christine is great. Uh, I have an episode on Christine. I have an episode on Halloween and an episode on They Live. All three of those movies are excellent. Some more are The Fog from 1980, Solving Precinct 13, Big Trouble in Little China, In the Mouth of Madness, Escape from New York, and of course, The Thing. I'd also like to recommend Starman, which earned Jeff Bridges an Oscar nomination. Vampires is pretty great. Village of the Damned, which is a remake of a classic horror, uh, English horror in black and white. Both versions are really good. Prince of Darkness and uh, a TV film that John Carpenter did called Elvis. It stars Kurt Russell as Elvis Presley. It's, it's really good. Be on the lookout for my critiques and commentaries on John Carpenter's entire filmography throughout the year. Next week, I'm discussing how modern comedies have used the humor of yesterday as a launching off point to create new subgenres. In other words, how guys like Seth Rogen and Judd Apatow have changed comedy 
probably forever. Thanks for hanging out with me today and letting me talk your ear off about the films of John Carpenter. If you're looking for a takeaway from his films, it might be this. No excuses, no limitations. Use what you have and just make something. John stayed true to himself and used his unique voice to create some of the most iconic, independent films of all time. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't do something, even if that person is yourself. Thanks again. Be sure to spread the word about the show. Tell your friends that think they've seen every movie to listen in. I promise they'll find something sooner or later that's new to them. Until next time, I'm Zachary Markley. What will you watch this week?